0: What I need a ride, right? Power Ballad Friday, and you are welcome. It's like a steamroller, isn't it? It's like a slow-moving tank. Love Bites by Def Leppard. Highly produced anthem that it is. And at one stage in New Zealand, there were more Def Leppard T-shirts than nasturtiums. They were that big.
1: <laughs> isn't it
0: great, Leonie? Look at the smile <laughs> on your face. The,
1: just the facts that you come up with, Wallace. I mean, who would come up with that?
0: Me. And, that's and that's who come up back with back
1: to gardening, right? <laughs> oh my gosh,
0: Simon, you'd have the T-shirt. <laughs> you'd probably still wear it. Yeah. In your business <laughs> is boring podcast yeah. or whatever it's called.
2: I can, I can never tell whether you're, with, with half of the tunes whether you're um, whether you're with us or whether you're having us on. Yeah, <laughs> you think I'm trolling you, dear? You? Oh well. Anyway,
0: there you go. It's Power Builder uh, of Friday, and uh, yeah, what a song. what a tank of a song. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Anyway, hey, let's bring it up a bit. Just for what ten seconds. Thank you very much. How about a Friday? Um, well, uh, panel family, you all think that I should start a petition to get garden back onto TVNZ. So uh, maybe if um, uh, one of the heads there or even broadcast <laughs> <Ford> <laughs> eminence is listening, that's what they want—a yeah. um, gardening show like Maggie Barry's. Oh, brilliant! Uh, also, garden makeover shows. Um, there has been a large increase of interest in gardening during the lockdown. Wallace, stop it! So good. Love bites. Thank you. <laughs> Twenty-four to five. The panel, uh, NZ National, and to this uh, developed uh, earlier this afternoon, the race from relation, the Race Relations Commissioner Ming Thum donated one and a half thousand dollars to the Labour MP Kerry Allen in the run-up to the twenty twenty general election. And a company called Triple Investments Limited also provided Kerry Allen a rent subsidy worth $9,185, according to the declaration. Now, 888 Investments has three directors, including Ming and Ying Foon. Kerry Allen won the East Coast seat for Labour, and donations declared by the MP show Ming Foon and his wife, Ying Foon, gave that 1500 bucks. Uh, but Allen said, when asked today, I didn't take any monetary donations from from Ming Foon, however, the election return for 2020 does show a donation of uh one and a half thousand dollars from an M and Y Foon. The ACT Party's David Seymour said Foon needs to go immediately with us as lawyer. Graham Edger to explain this. He's looked over it. Kira Graham. Kia ora. What questions do you have on this? You have got uh fifteen hundred dollars first up. Is that is that allowed? Is that under the threshold?
3: Uh, it's, uh, there is no threshold. There is no maximum. There is no minimum amount of donation you can make. There's no maximum amount you can donate. So um, that was certainly proper, um, well, not certainly lawful for, for Kitty Allen to accept that as a donation uh, and to declare it. The, the slightly weird thing is that uh, a donation of exactly $1,500 is one cent below the threshold. So um, she did not need to, to declare that donation. that's uh, uh, donation's over 1500 so $1,500 and one cent, you'd have to declare it. 1500 exactly, you don't. And so... Happily, I, I guess, uh, we have more information than, than the Electoral Act sort of gives the public an entitlement to. Huh. Probably good that we know it, though.
0: And what about the rent subsidy worth $9,185?
3: Again, no issue in that with the Electoral Act, assuming that's calculated correctly, and that is how that's supposed to work. If someone you know, provides you... Um Sort of goods or services or something of value, and maybe they charge you a little bit. Um, then the difference between the the fair market rent and and what you paid would be a donation that seems to be declared as well. So from from a perspective of the electoral law. I can't see any issues with this whatsoever. Okay. Uh, uh, or at least legal issues with it. You know, there's the question of, well, when we're talking about $1,500 and a lot of people are saying, oh, it's good we know this, and $1,500, you know, if that's a lot of money, you know, one of the questions is, we well, if we, if we want to know about $1,500 nations, then the, uh, the current threshold of $1,500 and one cent is probably too high, because wouldn't we want to know if Meng Foon, the Race Relations Commissioner, had given $500 to an MP or something like that? And so sort of that's a political question of what the law should be, but yeah. for, from, from Kitty Allen's perspective and from the electoral law side, uh, I can't see any issues here at all. Well,
0: OK, a panel will have uh, questions on this. But yeah. Ming Foon said that he can be independent despite the donation and has given money to political parties of different stripes in the past, quoting, regardless of which role... It has been a family tradition to support left and right parties in our family from the time of my parents to now. I mean, what of the what of the perception of it? Can he be seen to be independent, Graham? Can MPs taking donations from government officials who are supposed to be politically neutral?
3: Uh, that's, I think, where the real question lies. I, I'm not sure there's a, an obvious answer. Um, this donation was made in 2000. Um, the 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 law hasn't changed, but the guidance has changed. So uh, after this donation was made, the uh, the Public Service Commission released a, a new code of conduct for Crown Entity Board members. So there's always been code of conduct for public servants um, the Human Rights Commissioners aren't public servants, um, but they are Crown Entity Board members. The Human Rights Commission is a Crown Entity Board member. The Race Relations Commissioner is a, is a, a board member of the Human Rights Commission. And so one of the, the bits of guidance, one of the things in the Code of Conduct is that uh, Crown Entity Board members, like Ming Foon, uh, must be politically impartial. Yeah. Uh, and that's mm. mostly they're talking about in their role, but also even when they're acting in a private capacity, they have to avoid political activity which would jeopardise their ability to perform their role uh, or which could erode the public's trust in the entity. And so that's the question, that's the crux of it, um, or it would be uh, if this guidance was in place at the time the donation was made, uh, which, as I said, it wasn't. Uh, this is a, in the year or so when after the donation was made. This, this guidance is... This, um, it seems to have been put in place in two, uh, sorry 2021, okay. and so the donation in 2020. Um, there were there were always been some sort of obligation of political impartiality on on board members. Uh, it, it seems to be clearer now and specific guidance for board members of Crown Entities beyond sort of, you know, the guidance we've always had for for public servants, which, which are sort of a, a, a lot clearer. Um, uh, yes. Okay, but Graham, really oh, we've got a
0: panel with us. Right.
2: Yeah, Graham, uh, let's uh, bring in Simon Pound. Yeah, well, um, news has just come out that Ming Foon has actually also donated a thousand dollars uh in 2020 to national and so well, he said that he's that given he said
0: that he's given money to parties of all stripes yeah. he said that earlier and, yeah. and
2: national has confirmed that that happened as well so he has acted in some kind of an impartial way and and doing that with both but i think i mean this is just such a beat up and it's, it's such a small um quantum of money and even the thought that someone of ming fun's integrity and life of public service would be trying to tip the balance of power for 1500 bucks to get himself some kind of favor is is a is a real nonsense and i think a real shame and i think it really um you you know the absolute bald-faced shame of uh of, of um seymour david seymour to be able to say that he should go um these numbers are tiny. They're given to both parties. Uh, he's a person who uh, conducts himself with huge integrity. Well, and acts, I don't you know, know. Very, very openly Accepts as uh, 850000 Well, this, is what, this is what Max Rashbrook
0: said on Twitter. This <laughs> is what Max Rashbrook said on Twitter. This seems very inappropriate, especially on Foon's side. How is it okay for a supposedly independent race relations commissioner to give $10,000 in kind to an MP, particularly one who, has, who later has power of appointment over them? So that's what Max Rashbrook uh, uh tweeted uh stay there graham leone
1: yeah I, I think the issue for me is um uh it, it and and graham thank you for explaining that that change came in in 2021 but my understanding was if you work in the public sector you are required to be politically neutral and i, I suppose you could say that um in this situation he's given donations but i would have thought politically neutral is, is staying out of that place so that you're not you're not uh, creating a problem and I thought the, the focus what do on... Would you think? Yeah, that's what I would have thought. Um, I thought the focus on Kerry Allen was a bit unfortunate because, to be fair to Kerry, I bet she can't recall every donation that she's got. So the fact that she might not have known, mm. I, I think, is neither here or there. I think the question becomes is, if you're in these positions um, in, in, in government, then the expectation is you're politically neutral. And, and I, I think it's sort of, it's just wordsmithing whether you're a race relations or a government employee because I actually just assumed it was all the same. Graham,
3: final thought. You know, I, I think, you know, members of the public, particularly sort of low, you know, if you work as a, a receptionist at work and income or something like that, you should be allowed to be a member of a political party. You should be allowed mm. to do that. You know, running for office or something like that is different. Yeah. And so I think, you know, it, your individual employees, particularly you know, if you're not the chief executive or something, you know, it's yes, you get to do that. Uh, The higher up you get, if you're a chief executive, if you're a board member, and I think that's maybe what Max Brashbrook was talking about, it becomes a little, little uh, fuzzier there, you know. Uh, And I I think sort of the the point uh, Simon was making about the ACT Party being, you know, why are they calling for this? One of the problems with the ACT Party's position on this is that they think that they, I think, have in the past agreed with Simon that $1,500 or even $10,000 is so low a donation that the public. political parties and candidates shouldn't even have to declare those sorts of donations. So it's kind of odd their position is we should have never found out about this in the first place. Um, But given that we did... um, It's horrible. Mm. You know, It's uh, you know that, I think, sort of the political question we have here is whatever we think about the donation, do we want to know that these sorts of donations are being made? And if the answer to that question is yes, then we need to be looking at what the disclosure threshold is for, for donations to both candidates and to parties.
0: Thank you for being on the programme, uh, Graham. I really appreciate it. That's uh, Graham Edgler, lawyer who's uh, looked at this, uh, and I'm sure you will hear more about that. Uh, on Checkpoint uh, this afternoon's stay with rnz.co.nz. By the way, you can listen back to any episode uh, of the panel. You might be busy at the time, you might be uh, uh, otherwise engaged. You can go back to rnz.co.nz forward slash the panel and they are right there for your listening pleasure. Now to this. Otago University says several hundred staff could be laid off because of falling enrolments and the need for budget cuts of $60 million. Applications for voluntary redundancy will open next week and more Job cuts are likely later in the year. Acting Vice-Chancellor Professor Helen Nicholson said in an email, international students uh, up by uh, 495, while domestic students' numbers were down by 670. Now, the panel, uh, we got in touch with a lecturer uh, at Otago University uh, who did not want to be named, but he said this. It's been years of crisis management, our decimation of non-academic staff in 2014-2015 left us with dehumanised shared services, de-skilling of labour that has not worked to plan by its own metrics, unquote. With us is Chris Whedon, the Executive Director of Universities NZ, Te Pō the representative body for New Zealand's eight universities. Chris, kia ora. Kia ora. I guess part of the shock, Chris, really, is just the sheer numbers touted. I mean, hundreds in a small city like Dunedin, that really will have um, quite an impact.
4: Look, of course. And um, it's a problem that isn't just shared with the University of Otago. Uh, it's a problem that's facing a large part of the rest of the sector as well. Um, and, yeah, it's it's awful. Um, you know, for the people that are going to be caught up in this uh, at Otago and at the other universities that are going through similar um, challenges around balancing their budgets.
0: Yes, because this does go wider than Dunedin, mm. doesn't it? I mean, AUT are uh, undergoing some restructuring, other universities struggling, but I think Canterbury is the one that uh, just presently their numbers uh, are, are up. So uh, is this more of a systemic issue in universities?
4: It's a combination of two things. So individual universities' numbers are up or down for different reasons. Uh, But across the board, we've got a long-term problem generally with funding. So um, putting Mm. it in really simple terms, just under 80% of all university funding comes from the government uh, directly or is controlled by government in terms of the set fee rates. Uh, This year, for example, uh, the the amount of money that's controlled by the government only gone up by 1.6%. So we're dealing with some pretty major cost pressures at a time when, of course, funding you know, just isn't sort of keeping up. So every university is having to, if they can't increase their numbers, uh, they are having to basically find ways of cutting their costs.
0: Leonie.
1: Um, so the because I when I first read this article I thought oh maybe it's uh, we haven't got the numbers back for the international students but um, the information provided before said the international students numbers are up and the domestic student numbers are down so I suppose one, one of the thoughts I was thinking about was you know what are the strategies to increase those student numbers um, and and then the other thing I was thinking about what does this actually mean for the students currently doing courses because uh, Otago not only have courses in Dunedin. But they have campuses around the country. So are they looking at, um, you know, do you think they're focusing on just the Dunedin staff or are they looking at reducing staff around the country or reducing campuses around the country? And what does it mean for students already doing courses going through?
4: So if I take those questions in reverse order, um, uh, universities will always ensure that students are able to finish off their qualifications and programmes. There won't be anything that's ever done around this that's going to mean that a student can't finish. It might possibly mean that, you know, if they had six choices in third year, there might be only five choices by the time they get to third year or something like that. Uh, And often courses will get get combined or something. On the other side... um, you know, we, we're really, we're coming out of a, a couple of unusual years. Mm. There's a whole lot of factors that have come together that have affected the numbers of students that are really coming through. And there are things like um, prior to COVID, there would always be a couple of thousand um, school leavers that would go overseas to do their university degrees. That, of course, with borders reopening, is happening again. Mm. So there's a drop in that space. We are seeing fewer 17-year-olds. Actually, you know, there's always demographic changes. We're seeing fewer 17-year-olds coming out of the schooling system at the moment. Right. That'll Mm. continue until um, 2026. Uh, There are lots of jobs out there. And, you know, some students are actually going, well, it's a very expensive proposition uh, going to university, particularly things like cost of accommodation and such these days. Mm. And so some students are choosing to, you know, actually go and work rather than studying. Uh, we're certainly seeing that with, um, for example, mature, say, part-time students, where we're hearing a pretty consistent story that, you know, a lot of them are choosing to delay studies, you know, or to do, where they might have done, say, two papers a semester, they're doing maybe just one at this stage.
0: Yeah, uh, so changing uh, societal patterns mm. there, Chris. Simon Pound. Yeah,
2: Yeah, and uh, yeah, picking up on that, is it changing societal patterns and that, you know, more people may be working closer to, industry uh, that they're involved in or doing courses in part-time or, you know, around work ways? I mean, are those kind of trends meaning that um, organisations in the the bigger centres are faring well or is the whole sector down?
4: Um, I can't really generalise about that because actually it's up in places and down in others. I think you're absolutely right. There are long-term changes in how University education is being delivered, uh, even just simply out of the COVID period. There's a lot more um, kind of blended delivery now, so a lot more in person and online. Um, yeah, certainly, employers are looking for a lot more delivery uh, to staff in the workplace, and we're seeing a lot more uh, programs, you know, your social work and teaching and such. A lot more time actually being spent, you know, developing those practical skills, particularly in say health jobs and things like that. So, um, all in all, there's a whole range of different factors there. Yeah, you know, and and in terms of the kind of story we're talking about here around universities having to manage their costs all of them are, on average, coming together to basically force universities to generally, you know, have to make some hard choices about mm. balancing their budgets.
0: Mm. Nice to have you on the program, Chris. Thanks for being with us today. Okay. Uh, that's uh, Chris Whelan, the executive director of Universities uh, NZ. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Lovely to uh, have you company. Oh, I would like to see a show, TV show on TVNZ, interviewing and supporting New Zealand artists. We have so many local and abroad doing amazing things. It'll be great to see the. Ways that people work there. There yeah, used to have quite a few arts shows, or uh, one or two key ones. Mm. Kaleidoscope, back in the day. Can you recall that, Leone? No, I can't oh, recall very that good. one. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Now, there are some
1: good podcasts, though. I think yep. Radio New Zealand again. There are some quite interesting ones where they do interviews of whole raft of different people, including some. You of the and your podcasts. Artists. Yep.
0: You're addicted, aren't you? Oh
1: well, you do like the podcast, and I think Radio New Zealand. See, you don't even pay Thank me for you. saying this, but <laughs> but they do do a good job.
0: Yeah, you're a, you're a great primer. <laughs> all right, now, the difference in urban and rural land prices have roughly doubled over the past 10 years. Take Auckland, for example. In 2010, Auckland's urban land values were 2.1 times higher than the value of adjacent rural land. But in 2021... That ratio rose to 4.4 times higher. So, to discuss, we have uh, Te Wahanga NZ Infrastructure Commission General Manager of Strategy, Jeff Cooper. Kia ora, Jeff. Kia ora, Wallace. How are you doing? Good. I was quite surprised by this, and needless to say, quite amazed by uh, the jump. And it isn't just in Auckland, Tauranga, Hamilton, Wellington, Queenstown, but not Christchurch.
5: Not Christchurch, which is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and And I think the three sort of standouts on on um, on the upside Auckland Tauranga, Hamilton, all in the Golden triangle, right? So you've got a lot of uh, growth pressures there, and it certainly comes out in this work.
0: So what ratios are we talking here? What are we talking about in real dollar value?
3: yeah, so I mean let
5: me run it through you right because it's a it's a little um it's a little tricky, but the um, the work, the fun, fundamentally this work is about how expensive it is to live in our cities, right? And it, yeah. it concludes by saying that it, it's really about planning rules and infrastructure costs. Um, and so the way that we sort of go about this is that we look at land just inside and just outside. Uh, the urban boundary in six different different cities, um, and we see, as you would kind of expect, we see that ha- that land prices just on the inside of that urban boundary are more expensive uh, than the rural rural ones. But as you say, you know, when we look over time, we see that these numbers have really increased substantially. So let me give you an example with some um, with Todonga. Uh, where uh, there's been a twelve-fold increase in the difference between urban and rural land over the last ten years, and what this means for a property is that uh, a property on the urban boundary is now for about four hundred thousand dollars more expensive today than it was uh, ten years ago. Good that's grief! The line, right? Yeah.
0: Gosh, Leone. The, you'd be all over this, wouldn't you? Are you surprised yeah, by this?
1: No, no. Well, I think it's, you know, and uh, Jeff's right. It's understanding that if you've got land in the urban boundary, you can do a lot more with the land. So it's got a higher use. You know, it could be residential, it could be commercial. If it's in the rural boundary, you, you, you know, it's a much lower lower use. But the other thing I think um, important for people to understand yep. too is that um, there's sort of three levels of value, isn't there, Jeff? You, you, you sort of have your base land value and then... Then it's about uh, there's a cost once you've put infrastructure in, because there's a big cost to put infrastructure in. And then on top of that, if you're a developer, there's another cost to go through and get a resource consent to enable you to do development. Um, so a lot of it is is determined by what you can actually do with the land, which just shows you how critical getting our planning right is. Yes, and you talked
0: about that quite often, haven't you? Stay yes. there, Jeff. Let's bring Simon in as well. <laughs>
2: Simon. Yeah, I think um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so that kind of um, incredible uptick towards the r- rural boundaries has been interesting. But if you look in the Auckland context, you know, there's such incredible, intense, um, and dense housing happening out in um, Franklin and um, you, you know, Alfriston yep. and Kumeu and all of these places that are not served by fantastic um, you, you know public transport, but yep. are having incredible amounts of Terraced housing and the like, which feels like the the goals of the planning to have things in a very urban context, are happening in almost rural areas. A comment on that, Jeff. Well, yeah, I
5: think we do a good job of building inside-out cities in New Zealand, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, situation where yep. we've got low. That's density a good phrase. To the core and uh, the high density we're putting
0: on the edges. Inside out studies. I'm going to remember that, Jeff. I'll get you back on. Uh, that's great. That's uh, the uh, general manager of the New Zealand Infrastructure uh, Commission there. It's almost the end of the show here, but I wanted to acknowledge this. Australian comedian Barry Humphreys receives overwhelming support as his health battle continues. The 89-year-old's health complications are related to a recent hip surgery, which was done following a fall in February. His dis- Condition is described as quite serious And as a big fan, I thought it time For just a moment to acknowledge Dame Edna Everidge I am touring I've before, well of course This show in London Opening, I hesitate to think How soon Has already been tried out It's had a provincial tryout In Australia oh,
1: yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which is my native land And then Just before London I'm going to Milton Keynes Yes. yes. Oh. Well Apparently the theatre is lovely ah, and- <laughs> Edna Everage, and that is our show Today Leonie Freeman Simon Pound thank you very much We're going to go out with a little bit of You know it, love bites,
1: (laughs) eh? Absolutely. We'll have you singing next, Wallace.
0: (laughs) Have a great weekend both, eh? I'm Wallace Chapman. Thank you to my wonderful producer, Ayana. uh, And see you 3.45 Monday.